Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the territories to Titan Towers to TNA and all points in between, he's seen and done it all. And now he's here to share the real story behind wrestling's biggest moments, controversies, and characters. The MLW Radio Network presents Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? I am absolutely splendiferous. So, uh, I'm sure everybody who has the internet now wants to know, or maybe they already know, how's your week been? Anything interesting for you? Universally great. <laughs> Oh man! All I, you know, all I have to say about that is MIGA, and we'll leave it at that. Uh, M I G A. Okay, I think I figured that out. Hey, uh, is this the craziest week you've had in wrestling in a long time? With uh, the success of the Houston show, and then the huge success of WrestleMania Nine. Man, that episode did over 300,000 downloads in less than 48 hours. We can't thank you guys enough. Somehow you guys really dug that one. Uh, Bruce and I really took each other to task about the whole Hulk Hogan European tour. We had a lot of fun with it. If you haven't checked it out, go do it right now. And people surprisingly really loved Houston, man. Lots of great feedback from that. And now a couple of days ago, the very controversial I'm fired episode. And we didn't even have to talk about what an impact Thursday was for you. So... What, uh, is, we haven't even finished yet, really. I mean, the, the different things, everything that is going on the last two weeks that we have had have, you're right, man. What an impact it has had on, on my life and also yours too. It's going to get crazy. It's going to get crazier too. Do you have any follow-ups from WrestleMania nine? Uh, it feels like we got a lot of great feedback, but I didn't really get any specific questions that I think we should circle back for unless there's something I missed. I, I didn't mainly people just came back on our argument back and forth. And I think for the most part, everybody liked it. I didn't that I can recall because I went through them all, man. I, I dug deep. I don't think that there were that many loose ends i don't think there were any that we didn't cover ad nauseum conrad well real quick two things i want to touch on number one 
the WrestleMania documentary that seems like it was shot there. Like maybe they were trying to make some sort of a making of WrestleMania documentary. There's lots of backstage footage from the true story of WrestleMania. And it seems like there's a lot of footage from WrestleMania nine. Did you guys have intentions on doing some sort of documentary about building that set and just what an undertaking it was to create that spectacle and then just shelve it? Or why was that footage shot back then? Do you recall? I don't recall, and I didn't even remember that until people brought that up. It was something that we were doing. It started out to just be kind of documentation of what we could do to transform a building in a city. Because we took over Las Vegas when we were there for the show. It was to be used as a promotional tool, but in-house. To be able to send out to cities in the future to say, hey, if we can do this for Vegas, imagine what we could do for your city. Uh, One more thing before we get to what we really need to talk about. Uh, I got a couple of guys who tweeted me to say, and I missed this, So, and I haven't gone back and watched it. I know I'm being lazy by not doing that, but good Lord, I've watched WrestleMania 9 enough at this point. Supposedly, uh, allegedly, rumor and innuendo, what have you believe, that when Luna is making her way to the ring, the Macho Man refers to her as a whore. I don't remember that at all. I don't think that could have possibly slipped through. But supposedly, there's a small contingent of people on Twitter who say, oh, no, it happened. Do you remember that? Absolutely not. I'm not saying it didn't, uh, but I don't remember that at all. And I didn't even see that on on any of my feeds that I can recall. Well, it's probably because, you know, hashtag when old people tweet. Hey, real quick, let's go ahead and clear up the WrestleMania 9 fight that so many people wanted to talk about. Uh, Let me just freestyle a guess here, Bruce. I believe that we made the announcement uh, at the WWE show or WWF show in April. So right after WrestleMania, they go to Europe. It stands to reason to me that at intermission, they announce maybe uh, Yokozuna had just had a match or Brett had just had a match, whoever had just had a match. And then at intermission, they announce that tickets are going on sale right now for our return here to Europe in the end of the summer. So late July, early August, and tickets are on sale now, and they'll feature Hulk Hogan, your WWF world champion, in what could be his final European appearance. Maybe the concept of we needed him to be the champion when we went back to Europe was to announce the on-sale date more so than the actual show. Probably most likely, yeah, because obviously I had my dates fucked up. <laughs> but uh, but no, that was like I said, that was the original intention is not like you're going to go make something up. And <laughs> well, yeah, just idea. saying, but like you said, yeah, well, we're there. We're, you can you have a captive audience. Hey, folks, coming back will be WWF champion Hulk. Hogan. They still do that now. You know, they'll announce, you know, tickets go on sale tonight after the show. Use this code on Ticketmaster and we'll be back on such and such date for so and so show. So it it stands to reason that that's what they did back then. Uh, A generation ago, they did that a lot around intermission. Do I have that right? Exactly. You would do that. Usually they would have, usually they would have your main event, your scheduled main event. If you were going to do a return, go to intermission and then come back at the very end of that intermission and announce the next date with the stars and the return. So that was the way we did business. All right, man, it's time to get to it. It's beyond the mat. It's what you wanted to see. And I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and pull this video up. Um, You can find it somewhere online. 
Uh, I won't say exactly where, because as soon as I do, it will be pulled down when half a million of you go find it. Uh, but I would encourage you to find it and then uh, maybe pause our audio when I say to here uh, and then hit play when we say play. And then you can kind of follow along. Now, we're going to try to do as, as good of a job as we can to be descriptive. So you don't have to actually sit and watch this, but it might be helpful when we're describing something we're seeing. So if you can do that, do it. But if not, don't worry about it. Uh, but let's get going, and I'll encourage you to go ahead and hit play now. Uh, as we're loading this, uh, I want you to kind of help us with some backstory on Blaustein. Uh, my research showed that he helped a lot with Eddie Murphy's early career. He worked on Saturday Night Live and then helped Eddie with a lot of his big movies, whether it was The Nutty Professor or Coming to America. He was a writer for a lot of that. So Universal Pictures agreed to fund a documentary on wrestling for Blaustein, and he was supposedly a big wrestling fan uh, and, and was really fascinated by the humans who played these characters, the real guys and their real stories. Uh, and he got the green light to start doing this in 94. He met Mick Foley on the independence in 95 and then tried to get a deal with the WWF. Even with Ted DiBiase, he couldn't get anything going there. He even called it impregnable uh, and eventually reaches out to Turner and WCW a deal can't be put together there, though, because they want editorial control. Uh, but eventually, when Vince is in second position, he agrees to move forward and uh, even offers to triple the budget for Blaustein. But Blaustein turns it down, wanting it to be independent. Uh, so Vince is caught on a good day, Barry says, and he signs the release. Uh, with a few exceptions, he didn't want them shooting the writer's room, and he wanted to see a final cut before the release. Uh, so with that in mind, as we're watching kind of the opening sequence here, Bruce, when did you first hear about this documentary? Well, first of all, it didn't exactly go down like that, I, that I can recall. I wasn't, wasn't involved in a lot of that early on, but Barry had made some inquiries. The, what got Barry in was Ron Howard. Okay. And. Ron Howard uh, from Richie Cunningham and uh, Opie Taylor fame, obviously a great director and producer, was Vince McMahon's neighbor. And they knew each other casually, but Ron Howard is the one that called Vince, and Ron is the one that basically walked Barry in and got Vince to listen to Barry. And Ron was the one that pitched that this would be a documentary this was not a uh, motion picture for theatrical release and commercial release, that this would simply be an art house documentary. So, Bruce, we're still looking at Titan Towers here. Uh, lots of questions about this receptionist. <laughs> Does the receptionist really say, well, Wrestling Federation, like that over and over and over in real life, the way you remember? Is this a real receptionist? Yeah. And what floor are we on right here with these TVs and the backlit letters? That's the fourth floor. He's on the fourth floor right now, as a matter of fact, walking through the hallways with all the file cabinets in the walls. and You could get lost in there if you didn't know where you were going. What year did y'all buy this building? I don't remember. Sometime in the early 90s. Uh, and then you redecorated it. It doesn't look like this now. It's a little different now, quite a bit different. But uh, Well, I haven't been there in eight years. So <laughs> uh, we're about to see, I, I believe... The McMahons get off, and el there they are. The McMahons getting off the elevator. This is also the fourth floor, and there's another section here with another door that goes to, like, Vince's office, right? 
Yeah, this is the fourth floor lobby, and then you had to have your key card, and you get in through the lobby, and Linda's office is straight ahead. She walks through that door, and then Vince is walking down. Now, if you were to take a left right there during those through those glass doors, that would have been my office back in there. So this segment right here with Vince, we make movies, and a little smirk, and then the power chug of the water. People talk about this a lot. Uh, we'll come back to that. Well, do you remember what building this was shot in here? This uh, dude love segment where Vince Russo and Vince is kind of coaching him up on how to walk and set this introduction of the character up. That's San Antonio. Who's the, who's the uh, guy on headset and who's the cameraman there? The cameraman is Stu and that's Mike Calabrese on headset. Um, so the Vince drinking water, uh, skit, uh, why does he think it's a good idea to drink water right there? That doesn't seem like a very Vince move to be on camera doing that. seems like that's it would be something a, that would annoy him. That's a very Vince move. Go back and watch the Costas interview, him drinking the coffee, exactly the same. Jim Johnston here. Where's his studio as we're seeing him? He's got a music studio over in the TV studio at 120 Hamilton. So that's that's you guys building right there? Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, these drawings here, uh, who would have been doing like the, the sketches of the characters? Did y'all have one for one, like go-to person? Oh God, no. They had an entire staff of people that that was entire creative services. They they had basically half of the third floor, at least it was all creative services of people that worked. What floor is Jim Ross's office on right here? Fourth floor. Okay. So everybody's on four. The the names that most people listening would know. Just the important people. There you go. Okay. Um, now we're sitting, we're watching a merchandise meeting here and there's people around the table kind of talking about, um, how it ranks with South park and Jim bell. Talk to us about Jim bell, the senior vice president of merchandise. Well, let's pause it then for a minute. Okay. So everybody hit pause. Um, you know, is, is Barry's going through all this stuff. It's important to keep in mind that. When Vince agreed to do the documentary, that he agreed to do just that, a documentary. He did not agree to do a a motion picture and something for profit. He was looking at this as an exposure vehicle, something that he thought was going to be in in art houses, but also as a tool that they could use to kind of show the company off. Um, We were also initially told that it would just be about the WWF. So as as he's getting into this, he wanted to expose certain parts of the company. And the original concept behind Beyond the Mat was much different than what the movie ended up being. So Vince allowed them a lot of access. It's funny that that he says, well, he wouldn't allow them into the writer's room. The writer's room consisted, uh, that was Vince's kitchen table. There wasn't a writer's room like there is now. It was Vince sitting around his dining room table, and that was if he had a writer's room, that was it. So there really wasn't anything that was off limits. He might have meant that, look, you're not going to be in the booking meetings. You're not going to be in the planning meetings for creative. Maybe that's what he meant by that, because I'm sure Vince did not want him to be a part of that. So as we get here where we have it paused, we – it's in a creative meeting for merchandising, has a lot of the uh, creative services people. The young lady that was holding the Steve Austin motion sensor mask, it was Debbie Bonanzio. And Debbie was the head of creative services. And Jim Bell was a senior vice president of merchandising and licensing. 
And Jim Bell was actually sued by the WWE. He actually went to jail for embezzling almost a million dollars and taking kickbacks from Stanley Shanker's company that was a licensing company that they were licensing WWF material. And then Jim Bell was getting kickbacks on that. And this was discovered later on, and he eventually served, I believe, eight months in prison and several years on probation. I believe he's out now. But here was a guy that was heralded as the second coming, and here's the the licensing guru. He did he did the Muppets. He did the Smurfs. He did all these things and um, embezzled a shitload of money. Let's hit play here uh, and get going back on the movie again. Um <laughs> So here's the uh, here's the motion sensor, Steve Austin. Who the fuck bought that? I'm sure somebody did. So here's Jaws. Um, it's hard to watch this and not feel bad for the guy knowing what ultimately winds up happening. Uh, but they kind of show the backstory here that he came from an upper middle class family. And is this really his first meeting with Vince or is this just put on for camera? This was put on for camera. There I am, and what that's there's me, my big fat ass in the black uh, jacket. But this was this portion of the movie was supposed to be about the development, taking a talent from training, from raw nothingness, and turning them into a WWF star. We chose draws to do this, and this was supposed to be a big focal point of the movie to follow him all the way through his training through his first match and then him eventually coming onto the main roster and becoming a star. So that's what, uh, this was, but yeah, this was pretty much set up for the meeting. Uh, the, who really discovered him and signed him? I believe that was Jim Ross that brought us straws. If you weren't doing talent right here, cause Jim Ross says, what's your role with the company at this time? I was in charge of the developmental. So yeah, that's what I wasn't, I was doing talent. When he starts talking about puke, and, you know, vomiting on a guy, like your opponent or the referee. Was that like a real fucking discussion or is this all just put on? I mean, there's no way Vince was like, yeah, then you'll vomit on a guy in real life. Yeah, it was because what Draws was famous for with the Broncos was puking on the ball. He was so nervous. But he thought he could puke on command. And they thought, hey, we'll have him vomit on a guy. Yeah. Okay, here we go. He's putting the trash can on the table. And he's going to do, this is the line everybody remembers, and I'm going to need you to do it. Go ahead, pal. All right. Now, here you go. He's, he's gonna, he's gonna puke. He's not doing it yet. God damn it. I jumped the gun. Oh my God. He's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna puke. He's gonna puke. He's gonna puke. He's gonna puke. Puke. Oh my. So here's my question, I guess. If it's a put on, why don't you at least have the guy legitimately puke? He tried. So that was the thing. Ross said he could puke on uh, command. Can't. But every time I would ask him to puke on command, like earlier in there, you saw the, the bit backstage. That was me giving a speech to all the guys having their first matches and stuff and tell them, uh, puke to puke right then and he finally did it because he couldn't do it in the match so we're about to uh roll into apw here real quick on vince 
when he's kind of going through characters and stuff, is he always that animated or is that all just strictly put on for the show? No, he is like that. He's very animated because he wants to become the character. We're talking about Roland Alexander here now. Uh, talk to me about Roland Alexander, the promoter of this APW promotion. Do you remember him? Yeah, I do. Uh, Blaustein did an interview with John Pollock. Uh, we're referenced a lot here on the show. And he says that Roland Alexander, he felt like, was trying to swerve him the entire documentary. He also says that Roland complained that uh, Blaustein, quote, made him look fat, to which Barry said he shouldn't have worn such a tight shirt. Uh, but he does come off very carny-ish. Um, and he also talks about, you know, the schooling system where you've got to have a $500 deposit and you've got to make payments and uh, it's very much pay to play. I mean, he's really trying to just milk the kids. Talk to me about the school system then, now, and your impression of Roland Alexander as we kind of watch some of this. Well, it, it was a independent in, outside of San Francisco. He had this school set up. And what Roland did was he would try and find guys that had a little bit of talent that could get booked in Japan or Mexico. And he would take, I think, 20%. Yeah. Out of whatever they got paid, he would get them booked and then he would take 20 percent of their money. They went out and did all the work and he would sit there and run his school and take their money. So they keep um, showing clips like right here where he's saying, you know, I'm leaving town tomorrow. So get me your check today. Uh, yeah. And then we come on. Then we meet Tony Jones. Uh, and this is the uh, the the guy who Jim Ross will critique his upper body a little later. He works full time for Visa uh, and he's making a $25 payday if he's paid at all. And of course, as he says that they cut to Roland who immediately says, I have, I'm known as the best pay man, best payoff man in the independent business today. Uh, and then they remind you that he's drawn a record house here of 112 folks at the show. Uh, and Roland says something along the lines of you have to be a prick in this business or the wrestler's ego and character, uh, will just run all over you. You can't be a nice guy in this promoter. Just get out of the business. Is that um, the way a lot of promoters thought at the time? Is that just the way the business is? Or is this this guy just trying to show off that he knows more than everybody and really come off like a fucking carny? Roland was a carny. He, he, was, he was a carny. He was a con man. It's worth mentioning he's passed away. It is. Uh, but he, 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 wasn't, he wasn't really a stand-up guy, and he rode the coattails of guys like Mike Modest and uh, Tony Jones. He, he was looking for that. This Mother's Day and Father's Day, look no further for the perfect gift than PaintYourLife.com. It's worked for me every time, and when I say every time, I mean it. I've used PaintYourLife.com to bring tears to the eyes of my mom, my dad, even my father-in-law. And right now, I'm ordering one for my mother-in-law, all from PaintYourLife.com. My mother-in-law's life is her dog, Missy. And this year, my wife and I knew exactly what to get my mother-in-law for Mother's Day, a painting of Missy. It really is that simple, too. All we needed was a, a picture from our phone. Boom, we're up and running. You see, PaintYourLife.com can really create a hand-painted portrait to fit almost any budget. And it's the perfect gift for your mother, your father, or both. I've used it, as I said, on almost every person in my life. I've given these to my wife. I've given it to my cousin, my mom, my dad, my father-in-law. If I'm looking to give a truly meaningful, personable gift, I know the paintyourlife.com has my back and they're going to make it easy. You can go ahead and start the entire process in less than five minutes. 
And what's really cool about paintyourlife.com is they can even combine photos. Maybe you want to put two people who never met in one of your favorite vacation spots. You can do that. Just upload the photos. Bam. You're good to go. Maybe grandpa never got to meet his grandson. Paintyourlife.com. That can become a reality. You can put people and places together, even if they've never been there. You pick the artist, you pick the medium. Do you want oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even go ahead and pick out an awesome frame. The whole process to get started, as I said, takes less than five minutes, and you can actually get your painting in as little as two weeks. But you work hand-in-hand -hand with the artist to get every detail perfect. If you're looking to get those waterworks going, to have your mom or your dad tear that paper and just almost be overcome with emotion, that's what I got, and I've never gotten that reaction to a gift card. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. Now, to get this special offer, just text the word WRESTLE to 87204. That's WRESTLE to 87204. Text WRESTLE to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. So there's Mike Modest living quarters. He lives above the gym in a one room. I mean, literally one room deal. He's been living here a year and a half, uh, not the best living conditions. And there you see his day job. He picks up dead bodies for funeral home, uh, and then works. And here in a minute, Roland says that Mike Modest has been ready for a year, but he's, uh, you know, he should have a contract, but he doesn't. And so Roland squeezes a couple tears out. The whole thing just comes off really, really poorly to me. Um, how do you think Roland came off in this movie? I thought he came off pretty bad. And unfortunately, again, this is one of those situations that was manipulated for for the movie. These were two guys that we were going to take a look at uh, in Tony Jones and Mike Modest. They had sent in tapes. We had looked at them. I don't know if it was Jim Cornette or Kevin Kelly or who brought the tapes in, but I looked at them and said, yeah, uh, let's take a look at these guys. So let Barry Blaustein know that these guys have tryouts and maybe these are somebody you could look at. This meltdown with this independent wrestler here who was spit on by a fan, supposedly behind the scenes, this guy slammed Barry and was uh, not slammed like verbally, but physically, and then apologized after. He just got a little too fired up. Um, and they make note that, you know, this dude's real job and all that. And here's Jim Ross. I've always had a question when I saw this, did JR really have a fucking life-size cardboard cut out of John Wayne in his office? Yes, he did. That's amazing to me. Jim Ross is cooler by the day. And he has, he has uh, one of John Wayne's shirts and his lighter and everything too. That's awesome. Uh, Mike modest. Do you think he deserved uh, a, a bigger shot in the business or just one of those things as you'd like to say? just one of those things he was a smaller guy and he was an okay worker that, that was about it 
So here we see the guys uh, coming into the building, and uh, Cornette is going to give some advice ringside here in just a minute that says something like, don't get going too fast. That's when you start making mistakes. Uh, and remember, you're telling them the story. They're not telling you the story. Uh, I thought that was just classic old-school wrestling advice. Wouldn't you agree? Well, sure it is, yeah. And Corny was one of the people that would work with guys that come in, and he would give them that kind of advice. Goddamn, slow down. Don't go too fast. You make mistakes, motherfucker. I saw uh, uh, Terry Funk say once, uh, slow down, go as slow as you can, and when you think you're as slow as you can, you slow down a little more. Slow down more, yep. (laughs) Uh, so Cornette here in a shoot interview after the fact years later has said that, you know, he thinks that he had set this up for them to work the dark match and then they smartened up Blaustein so he could go shoot it beforehand. So that corroborates what you just said. You see them kind of running the ropes here and working out beforehand. And then on their way back, they start talking about how the ring is bigger. The ropes are lo- the ropes are looser, stuff like that. And then very quickly here, we're going to see a chalkboard. Uh, now you guys use a dry, I mean, they use a dry erase board now, but Back then, uh, who would have had the duty of putting the chalkboard up for everybody to see at every show? Ring crew. Okay. Um, it's funny. Roland says, talking about the size of the show here, who knows what will happen to APW, which I find hilarious uh, that he thinks it's going to get to this size. Uh, there is a segment here where you're on camera uh, and it comes out. This is where Roland says that he gets 20. There you are. Do you get 20%? Rolling gets twenty percent if they get God, signed. What a good looking guy I am. Was that Sorry. yeah the rare facial hair from you? Was that common? This twenty percent uh, rip? No, not really. Some guys did it. I know Rick Bassman also did it in in L.A. and and this guy did it. And there were other guys around the country that felt that they if they trained you they would get a piece. So we're all standing around. Uh, there's Christopher Daniels in the background. A little Easter egg. A lot of people probably didn't recognize that he was even in the movie. But Jim Ross, Vince McMahon, Cornette, and Roland are all standing around a monitor watching this. This is a fucking put-on for the movie. You can't convince me they normally stood around and watched this. Yeah, that's true. Um, Vince says something like, it's nice to see a wrestling move for a change, which I was kind of shocked to hear him say. Um, and then somebody says, when they see the finish here in a minute, I'm stealing it. Do you know who is off camera who says they're stealing the finish? I think it was Glenn Ruth of the Headbangers. Yeah. Uh, they, they start commenting here. You hear JR say that Tony needs to work on his upper body a little bit, but that Modest is solid. Um, how, how common was it for guys like Vince and JR and Cornette to watch a dark match like this? Would they watch the dark match more intently than the other stuff on the show? I mean, I know Vince is watching the whole thing, but. It would, it would depend if there was somebody special that we really wanted to take a look at, it would be a sellout at the monitor. Other than that, we would wait a lot of times, man, I sat at gorilla position and I was there, I would watch it, but I didn't watch it until I got back to the office usually because I was doing so many other things. And Vince even asked for a tape here, right here. You see Jim Ross saying, you need to work on your upper body a little bit, uh, a little more mass on the upper arms, get something a little more flattering. Uh, and somewhere in there, he asked how old Tony is. How big of a, of a factor is age when they're watching a dark match like this? Is 24 versus 31 a huge difference to the WWF? 
It is when you're talking about making an investment in someone because you've got to think about making an investment probably three to four years before that talent's ever going to get over where you can realize a return on your investment. So if they're 34 and you've got to put four years in, they're 38, man, you're not going to get that much out of them. And, and youth is always going to be on your side. Worth mentioning, Tony Jones has told Blaustein that he's thrilled that this was included in the movie. It's a real documentation that he was once in the wrestling business and a wrestler. He's, of course, not in it anymore. Now we're going to Terry Funk, showing a little clip here from that looks like WrestleFest and then the IWA stuff and FMW stuff from Japan, the crazy deathmatch stuff. Um, so much to talk about here. Uh, and, and now we're going to see the Double Cross Ranch. Um, he's since sold the Double Cross Ranch. He lives on a lake now. He has a very, very nice home. But did you ever go to the Double Cross Ranch? It's kind of a legendary thing to a lot of wrestling fans. I've never been to the Double Cross Ranch. They, uh, they're going to tell you the story of his uh, retirement here, of course. And uh, one of the things they're going to show briefly here is his famous promo from Japan where he's yelling forever. As a huge Terry Funk fan, was his retirement in Japan, that forever moment, uh, was that a big deal to you, or because it was in Japan, was that even something that was on your radar? You know, bless Terry. I love Terry to death. I love him like a brother, but he's retired so many times yeah. that it's hard to tell them apart. The um, the commercial here for him uh, pushing uh, Fords or Chevy or whatever this is. Uh, it's it's a Chevy. It's a local Chevy dealer there in Amarillo, Texas. By God, uh, we'll, he'll reference that a little later. Uh, they briefly showed us the uh, clips, and I'm sure they'll show it again in a little bit with he and Foley from IWA King of the Death Match in 1995. That was a huge deal in the tape trading community. Uh, did was that even on the WWF's radar in 1995? Did you guys pay any attention to that, or was that just crazy horseshit you just totally dismissed? In 95? Yeah. Well, I I knew about it because Victor Quinones was one of the bookers over there, the booked foreign talent. I obviously knew about it. I traveled over there. But Mick, before that, Vince wasn't interested. As we, we'll, we'll tell that story when we talk about Mick Foley's career. He hated it. He didn't, he didn't want to see that kind of stuff. If you send him backyard wrestling stuff or that kind of crap, as he called it, that was a mark against you. He wasn't interested in it. How shocked are you that Funk allowed all this footage of the wedding to be included? I think Terry's a performer. I think Terry kind of looked at his family and, and looked at this as an opportunity to, to get everybody out there, maybe another platform to move on to Hollywood, uh, do more things in Hollywood. Do you have any fun stories about uh, Terry Funk's wife? She's a super great lady, but it feels like she's put up with a lot of shit over the years. She's got to be a trooper. Well, you know, they say God makes them and he pairs them. And Vicky Funk is the perfect companion for Terry Funk. She is one of the absolute, she's just a sweetheart. She is a honest to God angel. <laughs> I can't say enough nice things about Vicky Funk. Uh, so here's the IWA footage that we were talking about a minute ago, uh, a clip there, and then another clip from uh, his All match Japan. in Japan. Yeah, against um, Hanson and 
Uh, here's one of my favorite scenes. He's at the doctor's office and <laughs> they're showing him his two knees. Uh, and he talks about how he should not be able, uh, to function here. And, uh, he's going to need to get, you know, a new knee. Uh, and, and funk is, is just not wanting it to happen. Go ahead and, and relive that advice from Terry Funk as Terry Funk. Richard, don't let him cut on your knees. They'll go in for the rest of your life. So, doctor, if if I if I don't do anything, will I be able to function normally from here? He he always says, "Go ahead." Will I be able to go ahead and function normally? Um, yeah. It's painful to watch him walk in this documentary. There's a couple. There's a scene where he's within a stamp a little later, where he's walking away and. I know he just steps in a hole or something, but the way he recovers just feels uh, awkward. But we show him coming into ECW here, uh, coming into Philadelphia, um, and then they're going to tell you about you know the way ECW was produced and they show it in the basement and all that. But before we get there, we've got Vicky kind of sending him off, and he's rubbing this cream on his knees because obviously his knees hurt. And she says something like, uh, don't forget the branding iron is in the trunk. <laughs> I don't know why, but what a business. Uh, that cracks me up. What do you think of Terry Funk going to work for ECW? You know, Terry was an outlaw. It was an outlaw promotion, and they were good for each other. I think Terry Funk helped put ECW on the map. Nobody and by the way, where the hell do you keep your branding iron? Oh, in the trunk, of course. Okay. Uh, so they show him coming into the ECW arena here. Did you ever go to the corner of Swanson and Rittner? I've been by there. I've seen it. Never stepped foot inside. Uh, B-19! You can't help yourself. The fans here. It's audio, it's audio bleeding over from the documentary there at the ECW arena. So they're showing all the crazy clips here from ECW. And then they talk about, uh, the house where it was produced on the show, uh, Joey cutting promos in the basement and, um, Paul doing voiceovers in the basement and talking to Tommy dreamer. And of course they have his mom in the background ironing, which is hilarious. Um, is this more, I mean, can it get more old school regional promotion than ECW right here? All of this being done in a house like this. They did what they had to do to survive. They did what they had to do on a shoestring budget. And, man, it, it's uh, that's Happy Heyman to a T. How do you Allow think? me, sir, one more volley. Go ahead. So this show here is a pretty big show. This is Barely Legal, their first pay-per-view. Uh, it's a big deal for ECW, of course. And Paul Heyman is going to give uh, a rallying the troops speech. And you see him doing that throughout here just kind of talking to the guys individually uh but then he gets them all together and does the big rah-rah what'd you think of the speech in the movie paul Heyman is a great motivator paul can talk the shit paul can walk the walk he can talk the shit so no one can ever say that paul wasn't creative and paul wasn't passionate about what he did and he got other people passionate about it as well so to that kind of no different than Jim Jones. He was able to rally this misfit crew 
to go out and do something special. So I, I loved it. It's just classic Paul to me. Yeah, he's pretty, um, he's pretty awesome here. Uh, the, the filming here, Barry says took about two and a half years and he did it. Uh, obviously if you're a wrestling fan, you've caught on that this is happening during 97, 98, this particular speech is from April of 1997. Um, Talk to me a little bit about Blaustein's relationship with Barry Bloom, because Bloom was a famous wrestling agent. Uh, he's represented a lot of guys, including Jesse Ventura. Uh, were they super BFFs in real life, or how did they know each other? Hollywood, and the fact that uh, Barry Bloom was the go-to agent for wrestlers in Hollywood. I mean, Barry was the wrestling agent for a long time. So if you wanted to deal with wrestlers and Hollywood stuff, usually you had Barry as your agent. So they just knew each other from that. As far as I know, I I don't know what their relationship was beyond that. What were your impressions of Barry? I liked Barry. I thought Barry was a hell of a nice guy. Um, but he was, he was a Hollywood guy. He, He had, he had a bit of that, uh, Hollywood director bullshit in him, but uh, you gotta have that in you (laughs) to be a good, Hollywood director and survive. Jim he Cor- was a writer. He was a creative guy, and and that's what he was. Jim Cornette uh, said, uh, this was a thing where, you know, I liked everybody involved. Barry Blaustein loved the wrestling business, and he, of course, centered it on Funk and Mick, and I liked these guys, but I didn't want to be involved in the fucking movie because I knew they were going to show shit backstage. Uh, remember this was the edge of the internet. So still a lot of this shit that had never been shown, never been talked about. A lot of people didn't know this was what 96, 97 ish. There was a lot of shit you take for granted that everybody knows now that nobody knew then. And I didn't want to be involved in it. And Bruce Pritchard was always, Oh, he wants to interview. You'll be great. And I said, no, I'm not going to tell this shit. Uh, and then I walk around and see cameras and I whiplash myself to get out of the way. And finally, they said, just do this. Just show the TV guys where to dress tonight. Well, if I've ever heard of a scene that described to me as be the way it would end up on a cutting room floor, the way the guys would quit bugging me. So I fucking show the guys where to dress. And that's where the scene ends up in the movie. And I didn't know the camera was there when I was saying, holy shit, when I was watching the monitor. But actually, I didn't expose anything there. But everyone else was really working hard to do so. Why were you a fan of this when Cornette wasn't? I don't know that I was a fan of it necessarily. And it was, we were asked to cooperate. We were asked by Vince to cooperate with them and work with them. So it was your job just to sell it. It was my job to sell it. And it was my job to make sure that everyone cooperated with it and that they got what they needed to get. We did try hard. I tried hard not to completely let them in, but at the same time, you got overwhelmed with the enormity of it all, too. After this Terry Funk match here at WrestleMania, or I'm sorry, at uh, Barely Legal, the first ECW pay-per-view, they show Terry drinking Coors Light in the back while they work on him, and he's got a terrible cough. Uh, how I know ECW, you were never there, but how common was beer after the shows? Uh, I know once upon a time it was pretty common, and then it wasn't. When did that change? I think old school guys, they might have had it back in the day. And after everything is said and done, show's over. You have a few beers. That was commonplace. But then as the business got bigger, it became kind of frowned upon. Don't have beer in the back. Go out and go do your thing elsewhere. 
But yeah, I, I found it interesting as Terry's getting administered to by a doctor and he's coughing up blood. He's downing his beard <laughs> as fast as he can, and look, which, look. okay, what well, we should talk about, you know, at, at some point too, you know, Terry at WrestleMania in Boston. And then I've got great stories there of Terry needing to go to the hospital, but having to have vodka. Uh, so here are some old ECW interviews with Mick Foley. Uh, this was probably some of his best work, and I can't help but think some of this helped get him a gig with Vince. Am I off base in thinking that? Oh, we used the stuff that Mick did in ECW where he did, the, I'm hardcore, I'm hardcore. We used that to show how entertaining Mick could be to Vince. And that's what really kind of got him in the door. This... uh crazy stuff with fire and the explosions and the barbed wire. Um, I know you said Vince was anti this. Did you get it? Were you into it or was that not for you either? Not necessarily for me. I, I, I hate guys just beating the shit out of themselves like that and, and putting themselves in that kind of harm's way right here. The one they show Mick Foley coming out with the belt here, they say that he earned in the high six figures, man, I gotta be thinking in 1999, Mick Foley made North of a million dollars. Mick was doing really well for himself. How did that Chef Boyardee commercial come to be? They came to us. We did it with we did it with Mick. We did it with Rock and somebody else. I don't know if it was Austin or not, but I think it was three guys. It did really well. They came to us. They loved it. Uh, we're about to be introduced to Mick Foley's dad. Uh, did you ever meet him? What a character that guy seems like he was. He's an old uh, high school coach. And he, he was a character. Both of Mick's parents were characters. Really, really good people. They raised a good boy, Mick Foley. The old clips here they used for dude love of uh, Mick jumping off houses and leg dropping people in the yard. Stuff that, uh, I don't know, it really endears you to Mick, does it not? Oh, yeah. And, and the part here where he's talking to his dad through the door. <laughs> Come on. Can we just go down and wrestle with the kids downstairs? And you hear the convert, the two-way conversation is like, are they filming now? Well, well, yeah, <laughs> and it was just, that was Mick. I mean, that's Mick Foley. How hard to I believe is it that that's it. Noel Foley right there. Isn't it crazy? It that, is crazy? I kept thinking that the whole time watching Dewey and Noel. So they're talking to his dad here. And obviously we're going to talk a lot about Mick Foley and the Royal Rumble uh, we're going to get more into the Royal Rumble uh, when we actually cover Royal Rumble 99, but uh, we're going to get some of that here. I, I found it interesting that uh, Blasting says that when he was first talking about doing Foley, he was an independent wrestler, and that was kind of the angle is they were going to talk to someone who was kind of down on their luck wrestler, so to speak, and, you know, former star now wrestling in small towns is the way it was described. Uh, but then, of course, he winds up signing with the WWF. And I think uh, Blaustein says that Vince was shocked that uh, he wanted Foley because apparently they went over like a roster of wrestlers and who they thought would be good. And when Blaustein wanted Foley, Vince seemed surprised. Does that surprise you? Well, no, because originally in the. Oh, look, there's your concept. favorite. There's Dave Meltzer. Oh, boy. Uh, the original concept was to take somebody from the very beginning and take him through the process. So the the idea and the whole 
format of the movie changed, and it was a living, breathing thing that changed constantly as well. Uh, somewhere in here, Jim Ross says something like, I don't know if Mick enjoys the pain, but I don't think he hates it. Is that... <laughs> That's, That's kinda... accurate. Somewhere in here, Foley says, uh, I can absorb more of it, so that makes me marketable. Talking about pain. Uh, and he, he says, uh, you know, he wants his kids to just let them believe that dad is fine. And so he's kind of laying some groundwork for what we're going to see a little later. By the way, uh, how hot was Mrs. Foley? Oh, my God. Beautiful. She Absolutely. Was modern, man. It was, that was a true beauty and the beast right there. No doubt. Uh, and Mick Foley's talking about how, you know, he doesn't want to be remembered as the guy who pulls a sock out of his tights. And this is coming from a guy who had, you know, kind of been an underground legend and had a lot of independent, um, I don't know, hype, fanfare as Cactus Jack. And now, of course, by this point, he's doing some more silly comedy stuff. And he's talking about trying to be, you know, careful with uh, the bumps that he's taking. Uh, because he's trying, but he's trying to do it now while he's young, because he's hoping to retire at 35 or 36 years old. Did he ever espouse any of that to you that he hoped to retire at 35, 36? Yeah. Mick always wanted to retire young. And I go back and I've told the story before about Vince not wanting to use Mick because of the crazy bumps that Mick took. And then how Mick kind of made his name in WWF for a crazy bump off the top of a cage and the crazy shit that he did. Those were things Vince didn't want him to do that he did and really made his, uh, made himself famous for it. They're going to show a clip here in a minute from King of the ring 98. We get lots of requests about that. We hear you. We are going to cover it. We'll probably do it when it's closer to, uh, an anniversary. And uh, they're showing the clip here, and then they're going to show uh, Blaustein's answering machine where Cactus Jack's calling from the emergency room. Uh, and he says, Barry says, he doesn't think he sounds that coherent. What do you think of this recording? Do you think he sounded coherent, or did it sound like rambling to you? It sounded coherent to me. I, th- I thought I always, so, too. Oh, that always struck me as funny because it just sounded like Mick. And if you yeah. knew Mick, that was him leaving you a message. Uh, Foley says something like, uh, they tell me it was good, but I don't remember much about it. And he mentions that fans universally praise this first bump, uh, but the wrestlers really appreciate the second one uh, because they know how hard the rings are. Uh, and his wife is on camera here in a minute and says something like, I thought he was dead. Uh, do we you, all did. Um, he makes the comment here that one of the agents told Foley, uh, afterwards when he comes to the back and he's you know conscious uh, to call his wife and they said she's pretty upset and it was very traumatic to the kids who was the agent who would have went and said hey man you need to call the wife i have no idea uh the the story i always tell about it is mick coming back after the match with thumbtacks all over, in his head in his arms in his boots everywhere and apologizing to me because he forgot the thumbtack spot Wow. And I said, Mick, you got the thumbtacks in. Huh? And he had thumbtacks in him. Yeah. Still. So he was out of it a little bit. Uh, They quote his wife here on camera saying, I know there's more to come, and that's the scary part, uh, which is obviously a little foreshadowing to the Royal Rumble that we're going to cover 
uh, and they do a good job here. You know, you know, Barry knows what he's doing when they're focusing on his relationship with uh, the kids. And specifically, Blaustein says that this movie plays really well to women. They're fascinated with Jake's relationship with his daughter, which we'll get to in just a minute. And what a kind and adorable person that Mick is with his daughter and uh, his kids and his wife and all that. So they really do a good job of portraying the real Mick Foley, at least from my perspective. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, without a doubt. And if anything, kind of downplaying it, because Mick with his kids, that was his whole life. I mean, that's still is probably to this day. So now we're coming to the portion of the movie about Jake, the snake Roberts. And there's no way to cover this without uh, some of it not being awesome. And we're going to cover what Jake thinks uh, about all of this as we kind of get into it. Uh, But they, they kind of key this up with his WrestleMania six promo uh, from uh, his match with the million dollar man. And they show clips from Saturday night's main event. uh, And then him riding the ring cart for WrestleMania three with Alice Cooper. So the real high points of Jake's career uh, and Jim Ross is quoted as saying that Jake had a tremendous gift, but it wasn't his, his physical self. Uh, it was his brain. And Heyman really pushes that as far as psychology goes, Drake is, uh, you know, Jake is one of the most ingenious performers in history. Would you agree with those two? Absolute genius when it comes to the wrestling business, yes. Jake's psychology in his mind, second to none. Uh, There is a section in here, too, where they quote Vince McMahon, uh, and he says that Jake couldn't separate the real Jake from the character, and he never knew which one he was talking to. Do you feel like that's a fair assessment, or is that Vince just trying to get a soundbite? No, that's a very fair assessment, unfortunately. You, You just never were quite sure who you had. This is the first time you see, at least on camera, that I remember um, in a serious documentary like this, uh, someone using the phrase demons. And Ross is saying here that if it weren't for Jake's demons, you know, he'd be one of the most, you know, critical creative forces in the business. Uh, When did the word, the buzzword demons first become part of the wrestling vernacular that you remember? I don't know. It was probably stolen from the rock genre. Instead of talking about people having a drug or alcohol problem, they talked about them having demons. So your demons were if you had issues with uh, women or drugs or alcohol, just lump it all into one thing. So this promoter here is saying that Jake uh, demanded crack um, prior to making an appearance. Two days before, called him up and said... You know, I'm not coming unless you get me crack. Uh, Jake was quoted somewhere as saying um, it was a total lie. It was a scam Uh, to be told it's going to be a free for TV thing is one thing. But to take things out of context and take things and switch them around, there's a couple practical jokes that were put in there. Like when I was pretending to be asleep at the table just to mess with somebody or pissing in the garbage can, which is another joke. These guys whatever would do whatever they wanted to do with it and then turned it into a movie and made big bucks off of it. They never offered to pay me a nickel, nor offered me to come to the first screening out in L.A. I was the only one not invited. So that's a pretty good clue. Something was amiss then. But that's okay, you know. I mean, it wasn't the first time I've been screwed, and it won't be the last. Um, I love these fans right here, these Jake the Snake fans at this independent show. Have you ever been to uh, North Platte, Nebraska? Don't think I have. 
Um, blouse. This is DDT. Yeah, you gotta love it. How about this promoter here, Beckley? You in the loop on him? What a nose! The, here's what here's what I get with old Ed Beckley. There, what a nose! I never met him, never heard of him, and until this movie. So no, can't say I have. Uh, Blaustein responded uh, to some of these comments that Jake's made over the years, and he says he's never actually spoken to Jake since. That's worth mentioning. Um, and Jake says he's never seen the movie; he's just heard about it. Uh, but Blaustein says. I've never said to Jake, this was intended for kids. I have no idea what he's talking about. I did not mislead him or anyone else in the making of this film. I'm sorry. He feels that way. Um, in regards to why he would make these docu- these accusations, uh, blasting says, I don't know why Jake's looking for publicity for himself. Maybe I don't know. He has problems with reality. I wish Jake all the best. Do you think that's fair of Jake at the time? Obviously Jake's in a different place in his life. Now that's worth mentioning. If you're, out of the loop and you don't keep up with current wrestling uh jake is uh clean and sober and doing very very well uh, thanks in part to ddp yoga i do think that barry presented this documentary as different things throughout the filming it evolved and it changed so again they presented it to us as a documentary that would not be a commercial release it evolved into a full-fledged movie nobody was paid nobody was compensated for it but yet Ron Howard and Barry Blaustein and those people involved, they did get paid. They did make money off of the commercial release of it. So that is a fair statement. I'm not sure. I wasn't a part of any of the Jake dealings, but Jake is Jake's Jake. Jake right here is doing commentary talking about how everything matters. Uh, the way you walk, the way you breathe, the way you use your hands, the way you look at the crowd. Uh everything about it and they really do a good job here of illustrating kind of what paul Heyman had talked about before where jake just comes through the camera why do you think he gets it whatever it is the psychology side of the business so well and so many others don't because he, he grew up in it he feels it it's a mindset it's a passion and it's a feeling and jake gets it he feels it so he gets a little girl in the ring here, and later he refers to her by saying she's probably going to grow up to be uh, a cross-dressing lady truck driver with seven kids uh, and been married seven times. Do you think that's a little like what the fuck statement from Jake to make about a little girl? A little bit, yeah. Obviously, he's in a different place in his life, so we're not shitting on Jake there. Uh, he also uh, talks about how he goes from you know, the glory of this crowd and he's the biggest star here and everybody's here to see him. And then he goes home to the glamour of a Ramada limited. That's life. And, uh, exactly. he's, he's kind of telling a story here saying that he thinks he could be mayor because these people, you know, he's so over with them. I can't imagine what that policy would look like in that town. Um, somewhere in here, Blaustein says, this was about as far down as you could go in wrestling without starting over. Your thoughts? Uh, you could get lower, trust me. But it's it's pretty far down there from being in Marriott's every night and uh, flying first class in limousines and making big dollars to the Ramada Limited. Uh, Jake starts getting into some deeper, weird, dark stuff here. He talks about how his mother was 13 when he was born and his dad raped a little girl. Uh, and that little girl was asleep in her bedroom and his dad was dating that girl's mom. 
And then they interview Grizzly, his dad. And uh, Grizzly says something like, he was born out of love and I still love him. And then these guys spend like an hour together and don't talk. And I have no fucking idea what Grizzly's doing here. He's hammering a rock. Uh, he beating the fuck out of that rock. Yeah, it's 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 a sad, sad story. Yeah, uh, Grizzly essentially raped the daughter of the woman he was dating, 13 years old. Impregnated her and... Here's Jake. Does he ever come to any of the shows? I know they were estranged, but did he ever come around? Well, he, hell, he was an agent for a long time. I guess what I mean is, like, from a from a dad standpoint, from a proud parent standpoint, yeah. no, absolutely not. Okay. Um, Jake is telling a story here where he says that uh, he had plans to go to college and do this and that and. Grizzly told him he was ashamed of him and he would never amount to anything. So Jake says something like, so I gave up my dreams and I was determined to stick this business up his ass. I did it. And guess what? It didn't matter. Uh, he also talks in a minute, you know, I'm getting ahead here of the film, but he talks about having a family member that was murdered and then another that was electrocuted. And he starts to have some uncomfortable conversation about how sex on the road you know, with, um, when you're married, uh, is weird and it complicates things. Uh, when you start with one girl and then one with toys and then two and then two with toys, and then it's hard to just go home and just be with your wife. Uh, it just doesn't work. Is that, uh, one of the reasons that so many pro wrestling marriages don't work out because guys just find ways to entertain themselves. And then by comparison, going home and having supper and watching Fox news and having a role in the hay, is just not as nearly as exciting. Well, I think those that live that lifestyle. Yeah. And those that do those things, it, I would imagine it would be difficult for them to just go home and all of a sudden your, your dad and your husband, and you're not the star anymore, and you, you don't have everybody coming to you, buying you drinks, and wanting to go to bed with you, and do all these things. So it's it's a tough transition, and then you're only at home for a couple of days, maybe a month at times. So it, it is tough, but it's, it's up to you and how you deal with it and how you live with it. So we're going to transition here from Jake to someone who I'd kind of forgotten was even in this, uh, until I rewatched it this week and that's China. And, uh, they reference her as being a UN scholar and a former member of the Peace Corps. And we really get to see China's personality here in a big way. Uh, and they try to go out of their way to, um, show the feminine side. I, I feel like it's a calculated decision to shoot her getting a pedicure. Wouldn't you agree? Why is that calculated? Well, because I think they're trying to say that even though she's this large, uh, very muscular in nature woman, she's still very conscious and tries to be very feminine because she does present herself as that here. Uh, and they do some cutaways and show her uh, jaw reconstruction and some of her other surgeries that she has done to kind of change her look up a little bit. But I feel like the, the pedicure shot is probably pretty calculated, but I feel like we get a good opportunity to see some of China's more fun personality where she's doing, you know, mock home shopping network spoofs and shopping with her friends and 
getting in a hundred. That was actually her sister uh, that she's in there shopping with and getting the pedicure and everything with. Was she living with Hunter at that time? During this time, they were definitely together. They they probably were living together at this point. They show her piling into Hunter's uh, or an Eldorado, a Cadillac Eldorado that Hunter's driving. Did Hunter own an Eldorado or is that just a rental? Oh, that's probably just a rental. I was about to say, I didn't picture him as an Eldorado guy. I don't know what I pictured him as, but Eldorado. But that, but that is uh, Joni's sister there. Okay, Not cool. the one in the neck brace, the blonde. Uh, she jokes about, because of her love of lifting weights here, that her mom thought she was a lesbian. Was that a common thing in the office that people thought, hey, maybe she's differently uh, acclimated? No. Actually not. I'm sure it changed when Hunter started fucking her. Uh, we see Spike Dudley here in a minute, and uh, they represent him as a former third-grade teacher. They're trying to show you all the different angles and aspects of the business here. And when they're doing this interview with him, he's got blood pouring down his head. Uh, and he was originally supposed to be one of the guys they were going to shoot and follow for the story, at least according to Barry. Uh but that didn't work out because he got signed by ECW and they wanted someone who was just making independence. So once they got signed, they kind of pivoted. Uh, but Spike suggested they meet New Jack, who was very interested in the opportunity. So we're going to meet New Jack here in a little bit. What do you think about uh, Spike Dudley as a performer or as a third grade teacher? Would you want? He's sort of mentioning he's in the investment game now. So that's what he's doing in real life. But do you want Spike Dudley being your kid's third grade teacher? Yeah, he was a bright guy, a very personable guy. So, sure, why not? I think that's what a lot of people miss. I wasn't saying that like there's no way. I mean, he's quoting Falstaff here from Shakespeare, uh, I shall, I do. So the guy's clearly uh, more than just uh, chair shots. But his passion for the business in this interview where he talks about he loves taking bumps and he loves popping a crowd, that it's a rush, it's super fun. Uh, here's Coco Beware, and uh, he's talking to his bird Frankie here. And they're kind of not too kind to Coco in his hotel room here, talking about how he's um, kind of down on his luck and still trying to hang on to something. Do you, uh, if you're Coco Beware, why do you agree to be in this? It feels like this is just shitting on him. Look, man, I think all these guys agreed to be in it because they figured this was an opportunity for people to see him and ask him what the hell they're doing and maybe give him another job, another chance. Uh, of course, we've got to get Jesse Ventura in at the time. Of course, Jesse's a little more controversial now with some of his more recent legal wranglings, but he was riding high at this point, uh, having just been named governor of Minnesota. So he's probably a big get for Blaustein. I know they had the Bloom thing in common, but still exactly. probably that pretty was a big Barry deal. Favor. Uh, strictly a Barry Bloom favor. So, hey, I can get you Jesse Ventura. Uh, they're going to show uh, Vince McMahon here again briefly in an interview, and uh, he says that the Mr. McMahon character is a hoot and, uh, he thinks everything has its own little life. And he says something like, I'm not even really sure what this one is, but it's all about giving the audience what they want, whatever it is. Uh, do you think that, uh, that's Vince trying to get a little, um, I don't know, romantic about what it is that y'all do or did, or do you think that's the way it really feels? That is the way it really feels. Yeah, pretty much. 
it's simply an opportunity to express yourself and get out there and and he's passionate about it so he loves it uh it's worth mentioning that uh vince although he participates here he doesn't wind up wanting to participate later uh we'll cover that uh, when we get to that point in the story we're about to meet new jack next and they tell the story of new jack in a former life being a bounty hunter and show a tattoo that shows he has four justifiable homicides uh and then shows that uh what exactly is a justifiable homicide? It's a situation like if you were to break in my house and pull a gun and I shoot and kill you, then I just go to bed and it's business as usual tomorrow, but you're dead. Now, I, I assume what this means with his gun tattoo and the four bullets beside it is that when he was a bounty hunter, he would go to pick people up. And if they tried to pull some shit, he shot them and killed them. And because they were felons and on the run and had a gun uh it is what it is he shows his knuckles and he shows that one of his hands is missing some knuckles it's very smoothed out you don't see the traditional knuckle like you see on the other hand and he makes the comment something like uh that's from beating a bitch in the eye what's your thoughts on mr new jack did you ever have the pleasure of meeting jerome young I have never met him, never been around him. So I I really don't know. I've I've heard mixed reviews on him. Uh but I, I don't know him personally. He has a statement here too. I ain't a forty hour motherfucker man, never have been, never will be. I like my shit quick. Um is that the way a lot of wrestlers feel? Not being nine to five, yes. Uh, here we see uh a hilarious scene where new Jack leaves him a voicemail and then comes to visit him. And Barry says, I was excited for him to come visit. None of my friends even had one justifiable homicide, much less four. <laughs> uh, and then they're riding around and they're going to take him to an audition and riding Bla- around with three white people. And uh, Blastine says, despite hitting it off with new Jack, as it was shown in the documentary, uh, he never invited new Jack over for dinner, nor did he share, with him where he lived uh he just said that uh you know kind of was what it was but he does say that this is a legitimate uh audition and they wanted uh he, he urged the casting directors to be honest about uh what they thought of him and he says later when he looked at the scene he felt like it was out of a christopher guest movie that it even though it was real it felt fake as shit um he also says that this is filmed during the time when New Jack was on trial for the mass transit uh, incident. And when he was acquitted, Blaustein called him to congratulate him. And New Jack said something like, you're the only motherfucker who cared. Nobody else has called. Uh, and I found it hilarious here. They were joking that he could be a leading male. Uh, he could be, you know, um, maybe the best friend. He could be Denzel's pal. What do you think of that scene? Uh, I thought it was ridiculous. It is. This is uh, Terry Funk's uh, speech from right before Barely Legal. Uh, they did a banquet for him, and he announced that 1997 is going to be his last year, and it was time to go home. And uh, then they're going to start setting up the WrestleFest show uh, that happened in the fall of 1997. 50 years of funk. Uh, and we had lots of questions about this because I think I feel like a lot of people – we're kind of uh, confused as to how did an ECW guy get the WWF champion on there? Uh, go ahead and share with everybody 
that that's probably not nearly as interesting as they imagine. No, not really. Uh, Brett asked to do it. Mick asked to do it. Terry asked permission. It was that simple. It was Terry's retirement show, and guys wanted to be on it out of their love and respect for Terry Funk. Mick, obviously, from uh, Japan, and Brett, Terry and the Hearts go way, way back. So it it was a friendship deal. Uh, We're about to meet uh, the icon of the movie, Mr. Dennis Stamp. Uh, he says he's had over 800 matches and, uh, he's like king of the cockroaches now because he's an exterminator in real life. Uh, and he's going to protest here that nobody could have a better match with Dory Funk than I could, especially not the guy they're using. Do you know who the guy they were using was? I have no idea. Rob Van Dam. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dennis Stamp is saying that he could have a much better match than Rob Van Dam in 1997. Uh, and Blaustein says something uh, along the lines in an interview once that Terry Funk introduced him to Dennis Stamp when he asked if he knew anyone who didn't quite make it in the business. And Blaustein says that uh, Stamp probably has a better perspective on his career than the documentary shows, but in some ways he's the most or he's the least appreciative human being involved in the film. Uh, he says the whole reason that Stamp was in the movie is because he more or less threw a fit. Uh, because his scenes were delayed uh, because some of the stuff they were filming with Funk was running long. And he said something like, uh, Terry Funk gets everything and I get nothing. And uh, I don't know. I just find that uh, to be hilarious uh, because somewhere in here, he starts saying, I'm not booked, so I won't be here. It's an old rule I've had for a long time. I used to see the old guys come around and uh, I'm there now. And this is the highlight of the film to a lot of people. Dennis Stamp in his fucking underwear, jumping on a trampoline, uh, <laughs> lifting little First baby all, weights. He's wearing trunks. For the purposes of my story, out. he's okay. So you defended that. He makes the comment there as he's jumping that uh, I never know what my next match might be. Uh, my last match was in 1991, but I'm only 50 now, and the phone could ring at any time. This is 1997. <laughs> 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 uh, I love this guy. And here's where, um, you know, Funk is kind of begging him to be a part of the show. And uh, he's reminding Funk that, uh, you know, I was supposed to be, a re- I even offered to be a referee. And so Funk starts saying, I'm a referee, me, referee, me and Brett. And uh, eventually, of course, he agrees. This is where the, we see the, the very painful Terry Funk walk. You can tell the dude is just not feeling good with those knees. And uh, he he being Dennis pronouns, pal, uh, says that he's going to cancel his arrangements and his plans that day, even though it's going to cost him money to do so. Uh, he'd rather be in a main event than breathe. I thought that was a great quote. Did you ever meet Dennis stamp? I don't think I have ever had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Stamp in my career. I'll tell you this. I would break our no guests needed rule. If we could get Dennis stamp on the show. Assuming it was a video show and we could get him on a trampoline with those baby weights and that banana hammock. We'll see what we can do. Now you defended this. Did you, did you defend it because you yourself tan in a banana hammock? Well, I do tan in, in yes, uh, skimpy stuff to get a maximum sun exposure. Do you jump on a trampoline with baby weights when you're doing it? I try not to ever jump on a trampoline with uh, baby weights, regular weights, or anything. I find uh, 
this Dennis Stamp piece, hilarious. What would uh, what would Terry say about Dennis Stamp on that trampoline? God damn, Dennis, tuck your junk. How much are those fucking weights? Oh gosh, I love this. Uh, so we're seeing Terry set up this show. Uh, for those of you who don't recall this match for this show, it's, it's commonly referred to as WrestleFest. And it was a VHS, uh, huge success, uh, for RF video and those who sold it, it was big on the tape trading community because you had so many guys from different promotions who were on it. This card was a pretty big deal. Uh, you had, um, uh, wing and roadkill Taz and Chris Candido, uh, the young bloods, the bushwhackers, balls, Mahoney, Bubba Ray Dudley, Shane Douglas, Tommy dreamer, Beulah McGillicuddy, Francine, Dory Funk, Jr. Rob Van Dam, Mankind, Sabu, uh, Hakushi, Hayabusa, Masato Tanaka, Jake Roberts, The Headhunters, Bret Hart, and Terry Funk. It's a big deal. Do you remember uh, what day this happened? I do not. September 11th. Wow. It was at the uh, Tri-State Fairgrounds Coliseum in Amarillo. It drew uh, 3,800 folks or so, which is pretty damned awesome for an independent. Uh in your opinion, I know you probably don't know, but would he be paying Brett here or is Brett just doing this gratis for Funk as a thank you on the way out? I don't know what the arrangement was. Probably the guys were coming in doing it gratis. Terry probably paid their trans, but I don't know if they got paid or not. I have no idea. Prior to the uh, match, we see ECW kind of come into the ring and present Terry uh, with a, a world title and call him the lifetime world champion. I know you hate all things ECW, but that was a pretty fucking classy move. Wouldn't you agree? That was a very nice move. Yeah. I mean, they, Terry Funk put ECW on the map. So nobody's arguing that. Third. Uh, we saw a scene backstage where he was, uh, uh, talking to somebody taking his blood pressure and he joked, it would probably be 180 over 110. Hypothetically, if his blood pressure was 180 over 110, would they still let him wrestle? Uh, no. I don't think so. Especially that doctor that examined me in Galveston, Texas at time, but no. Uh, he also makes a comment that he wants to make sure that the guys from the Chevy dealer are taken care of. Uh, talk about what a big deal those sponsors are for local independents like this. Well, Terry Funk is a huge name in the world, but he is also a local hero in Amarillo. He wants to take care of the Chevy dealer if he's doing commercials for him. And he wants to be the face of that local Chevy dealership. So, yeah, you take care of your sponsors, man. Like we do here on something to wrestle with. Uh, Terry has said that he wanted to uh, lose this last match. Tell everybody why. It's what you do. You go out looking at the lights, man. You put somebody over. It's a time-honored tradition. It's the right thing to do. we'll see Brett coming up from the pen over Funk. Did you ever see this card? Would this be something that you guys get tapes of, or do you not even really care? Didn't really care. Obviously, I saw it in the movie. It's obviously a big deal to Terry. Uh, his retirement here lasted four months. He was in the next WrestleMania. Exactly. Uh, and, I'm the one, and I'm the one that pitched him to come out of a box. Which uh, I can't wait to talk about one day. Uh, I loved it. I thought that was my favorite uh, box entrance ever. So good for you for picking that one. 
Uh, talk to me a little bit about the scenes in here that we're about to see with Jake and his daughter. This whole segment, man, it's a tough deal. Uh, she shows her book and that she's kept, which is really, really just like a hate journal of sorts. Um, she's hurting pretty bad. Uh, and then they start, you know, showing them kind of talk together and he kind of alludes to suicide. Uh, and she gets fired up and says that that's for a coward. And then he gets disappointed and leaves the room and it's kind of odd. Uh, and then he does crack. And he gives uh, essentially an anti-drug speech, and he says there's no happy addict, and that nobody, you know, grows up to want to be here. And he says he doesn't feel sorry for himself because he's done this to himself. Is this the most uncomfortable segment of the show, or of this movie, to you? This this piece of business here with him and his daughter. For me, it was. I've never met. Uh, this daughter I, I knew his kids with Cheryl but it just was sad and for me I, I get it if you're a, a news guy you're a movie guy you want to have a compelling story you tell the sad story of the drug addict and you tell the sad story of the broken home I always liked that happy ending and, and I didn't feel that we got that here it has happened in real life. I know we're being it critical of Jake in real life, here, but, but for the movie, you didn't get it. You right. didn't. You didn't get that bow at the end. I don't know. I don't know how they filmed it. I don't know what the intention was. They got what they got, and Jake, as he says in here, he's got no one to blame but the guy in the mirror. He had demons, man. He had a lot of problems. And, and his daughter obviously lived a rough life, and she had a lot of problems, and she had a lot of uh, issues with her father not being there and, and different things that she's gone through her life without probably ever knowing her dad. I I try to look at the other side of things and, and think that Jake is probably thinking to himself, wow, what his life was not knowing his daughter. Yeah. And trying, you know, trying to get there – in his mind and going through everything that he was going through and the drugs and what have you feeling shut out. And what's the next thing you're going to do? You're going to go right back to what makes you feel normal again. And for an addict, that's going right back to the drugs. So it, um, wasn't happy about it. I, I don't know if it was good or not. That's kind of a postscript to the movie. Uh, Barry says that, uh, Jake went to jail for child support. And he didn't see or speak to this daughter before the movie was released. So from the time it was shot until here, he hadn't seen her in four years prior to this. And then he didn't see her again before the movie came out. As far as I know, everybody's talking now. Everybody's on good terms. He's made inroads and, and patched everything up and gotten his life back on track. And a lot of that he owes to Diddy P. I mean, he's a WWE Hall of Famer now. Good dude doing the uh, spoken word comedy club tour. Uh, he's done some podcast stuff. Uh, he's a nice guy. He's very entertaining. He is exactly as you would hope he is. So if you get an opportunity to see him, you should go out of your way to see him. But we're certainly seeing him maybe at one of his lowest points here. And uh, in an interview with uh, Rob Feinstein on our video, he said something like, talking about Barry, he knows what he did. Um, it was bullshit. I haven't watched it. I was set up on that thing. And he doesn't think it affected his career. 
he said, I'm the only one who ever affected my career. Uh, do you think this affected people's willingness to book him or were it's the wrestling business? They'll always take a chance. Well, they'll always take a chance. I think that if anything, it might've got him more bookings. I don't think it hurt his bookings. The only thing that's going to hurt Jake's bookings is Jake. So when he talks about looking in the mirror, that's what it is. Um, he doesn't have the movie or Barry Blouse or anybody else to blame for that. But as you say, he's turned everything around and done, you know, made a comeback. So I, I choose to, to view that end of it, but I don't know what they did. So I, I kind of feel a little bit for Jake knowing some, somehow sometimes what they do. It did make me sad, you know, seeing his daughter here and, and only being with her for a few minutes and then kind of them going their separate ways. It's sad. It's a sad story, but that's what Hollywood wants. Yeah, it's uh, it's not the glowing review of wrestling that a lot of people would want. You know, they would only want you to see the good stuff, the pretty stuff, and uh, that's not all you see. Uh, that's unfortunate, but it is what it is. Supposedly, Barry says that Linda McMahon was fired up after screening the movie. She says... Uh, she didn't think that it captured the fun the wrestlers had or paint the full picture and show it all. And according to Barry, he turned to Linda and said something like, you know, Linda, you're right. I didn't capture it all. Uh, I didn't show the sexism. I didn't show the drug taking. I didn't show all this. I have all the footage. So if you want me to put all that in, I'll put that in. Did Barry come off like a dick with that comment? I think so. Yeah. You want to you want to talk about Hollywood and you want to throw the that right back on them. You can do the same thing. So if you want to present a, a story and an uplifting story, there is one to be presented there as well. And we and that's what we want. We we want to present our business in the most positive light we can. Did you know when you guys were letting him shoot footage for y'all, he was also following Jake around? No. No, we didn't. Blastine said that a couple of days after screening the movie, Vince called him and said that he enjoyed working with him and he thinks the movie is good, but he's going to do everything in his power to stop it from being seen. And Vince tells Blastine it wasn't personal. And Barry told Vince he would attack back just as hard. And it's also not personal. And that's what led uh, the movie being marketed and advertised as, quote, the film Vince McMahon doesn't want you to see. Uh, Barry says he was against that being advertised that way but he understands why it was and the wwf went so far as to make sure that usa and upn would not air beyond the mac commercials and blaustein felt that vince's crusade to prevent the movie from being seen was intended to hurt the movie but it actually probably helped by raising the profile and uh, barry claims he was even given an offer from a quote very prestigious cable network to do a movie about vince mcmahon but he turned it down for two reasons one, he didn't want to be known as the guy who just does wrestling films, uh, which he's admitted he regrets not doing now. Uh, and secondly, he says he knew a lot of private information about Vince that was told to him in confidence, and it would be scummy to do a film based on information that was told to him in confidence. Uh, he also said that he provided a lot of insight, numbers, contacts to the people who made the movie The Wrestler, and he felt like that movie accurately captured the pro wrestling world would you agree with that do you think as far as 
you know, a drama goes, the wrestler captured it, but this and, and how captured do, a segment of it. Yes. How does this movie, in, in your opinion, encapsulate pro wrestling from a documentary standpoint? I feel like it's pretty legit. It is. It captures a certain segment of it, and it captures a lot of the underbelly and the negative of it. Yes. Well, it covers some positive too. It it did. It did. But again, when you go in under the proviso of you're going to present one thing and people are looking to do that, we we didn't know he was doing Jake. We didn't know that they were going to be presented this way. We didn't know it was going to be a theatrical release. So, um, he wasn't completely honest. And, and, and I say all that, and I think Barry Blasting's a talented guy and a very nice guy. And I enjoyed my time with Barry tremendously. Uh, Blaustein spent a lot of time backstage uh, with the cameras off, just getting to know the talent and trying to figure out who he wanted to be in the documentary and who he didn't. And Barry says that Austin didn't want to participate, though you do see him in here briefly saying hello to Foley prior to the I Quit match. Do you remember having a conversation with Austin about not wanting to participate? No, but there were certain people that Vince didn't want to participate. Like The Undertaker. Yeah, the Undertaker Austin was was one of those that he didn't particularly want Steve to to be in anything like that. Uh, Barry says that Undertaker was someone who very politely declined to participate, just trying to protect his character. Uh, and he also says that Kane and Austin weren't really keen on participating, just wanting to protect their character. And that makes total sense to me, especially with you know Kane and the Undertaker, even though they're ridiculous gimmicks. He does go out of his way to mention that Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, and Triple H were all very open. Uh, and he, he mentioned that uh, during that ECW filming they did um, at Barely Legal, one of the pit bulls threw a garbage can at him and then immediately apologized. I guess he didn't understand why he was back there or what the plan was. But it seems like uh, old Barry needed hazard pay between that and then the guy at the APW show slamming him backstage. Ah, uh, yeah. But again, it was a different time. You didn't you didn't really know, and there were people that were uncomfortable. Cornette, you know, he was uncomfortable doing it. Now he's very comfortable discussing all aspects of the business on his podcast. So times change, the business changes, and at some point there has to be that catalyst to take it to the next step. How great was Foley knowing he was going to be on TV here and wearing a Job Squad t-shirt, helping his buddy out? Mix. It was a free shirt. That's the only reason he's wearing that right now. I love you for that. Um, so we see Mick getting ready for the Royal Rumble here. Uh, so we've caught up with him. Um, he's got the kids. They're all out in Disney World. And the kind of backstory of how this comes about, supposedly, is this I Quit match was actually his idea. He wrote about it in his book and said that he wanted to find a way to help get The Rock over as a heel. Of course, he's super over, but he's hard to boo. So he wanted to show a mean streak in The Rock. So he pitched the I quit. Uh, he says, the storyline I proposed would be heart-wrenching. I would be bludgeoned. I would be helpless. And my wife would be watching front row. To be helpless, I would need to be handcuffed. I actually used the handcuff trick in the Philadelphia-based Extreme Championship Wrestling three years earlier while facing uh, my old friend Shane Douglas. But that one never had gone the extra emotional mile. Uh, to go that mile, I would need Colette. And uh, supposedly, when he pitches this to Vince, and there you are, uh, talking with The Rock and uh, Mick. 
when he pitches this to Vince, Vince asks, are you sure you'd be willing to do this? And, uh, he, he said, yeah, this would be the heaviest angle we've ever done. And he knew that would culminate in a series of chair shots to his unprotected skull. And he says, Vince, uh, voiced his objections, but he was insistent that it would only be done a few times. And the anticipation of the chair shot would be much worse than the actual shots. And he could take two minutes between <laughs> each shot. And then the cameras would show Colette crying and then the cut back to her and then show her crying. And then the fans would be begging him to quit and they could build this up. Uh, and that was the plan. And he even convinced Vince to let him take some time off after to kind of sell it, take the kids to Disney world. And he asked if, you know, Vince would pay to fly the whole family out first class. And Vince agreed. Well, then plans change as we've learned and halftime heat becomes a thing. So now this Disney vacation is over until they rearrange it. So now the kids go to Disney first. So Colette is totally in on bringing the kids and doing this crying thing. And, and Mick says, Hey, let's not let the kids watch the match. Let's just, you know, bring them, but not let them actually watch the match. And, um, she says, no, they should be allowed to watch it. They've seen you do this before. They know it's not going to, you're not really hurt. Uh, they'll be fine. And he starts to wonder, Hey, is this going to backfire? Are my kids not going to cry? What if they actually laugh at the match? And he says the night before uh, we're seeing this here, Vince calls at like 11 o'clock at night and says they need to change the finish because, uh, the, uh, television critics association, which was the head of USA at the time had taken a lot of heat for the content of the show and they tried to sell it as if it's not that bad. And in fact, he's taking his, his nine-year-old son to sit ringside to watch it. And Russo says, Mick, if we do that finish, we're going to bury the guy after he went to bat for us. So then he talks about coming up with a plan B and the idea is going to be, they're going to decide on a number of chair shots and they agree on five and the last one is supposed to be the knockout blow and it's to the back of the head. And, um, he says, you know, he vaguely knows how a death row inmate feels now when his number's finally called. Uh, he usually couldn't wait to get through the curtain, but on this particular night, he was hoping his music would go on forever. He had this really strange feeling and he just was not feeling it. And uh, we kind of see him saying goodbye to the family here. They're going to make their way out to the fourth row and then eventually move up uh, to the front row. And we see a young Stephanie on headset there. How weird is it to see Stephanie on a headset? She looks like a teenager here. Yeah, she was quite young. Uh, what do you remember about what we're seeing here? We see Mick doing setups to stretch. I would never would have imagined we would have seen that. We see the rock talking to Ed Ferreira, uh, practicing the promo. You know, it, it's, I remember the, the controversy with, with the finish and what have you. And Vince was uncomfortable using the family in, in our storyline. He, he just wasn't comfortable with it. And add to that, the, the, uh, the folks at USA and, and the folks with the whatever it was, parent teacher council, I don't know, whatever that, whatever the, the television critics bullshit. Um, it was a heavy finish. It was emotional. And 
It's funny to see how this interview is being produced here because there's no script. Hey, there's your cockadoodle-doo man. He's not wearing a watch, though. No, that would be me. Um, so it, it's just, it was, it was risky. I mean, it, it was really risky. What the look at that long hair actually going to be? Whose hair? Your long ass hair. Oh, long ass hair. Yeah, I had some hair then. Look at that good looking some bitch. But um, there's yeah, doot, doot, we didn't, doot. didn't think we didn't think that. Uh, that it was going to be as bad as it was. Um, Terry Taylor at that point, was he been considered an agent? What was his official title? Yeah, I guess he would have been an agent at that point. At this point, uh, Doc Hendricks didn't have near the power and stroke that Duke 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 does in 2017. Was that fair to say? Yeah, he was strictly an on-air talent. Man, you talk about working your way up. That dude has done it. Well, Michael worked his way up by opening his mouth and throwing out really great ideas and working for his shit. So, uh, hats off to him. He had a lot more hair then too, huh? By the way, backstage here, you know, when he was just in his regular street clothes earlier, uh, just talking on camera, I don't feel like the rock could have came off any cooler here talking about him wanting to be booed and being a big piece of shit. He just seems like he gets it. And obviously his promos are just outstanding and, I hadn't seen this era rock stuff in a long time until I watched this again. It's it's worth mentioning that uh, Foley wrote in his book that he had never been as nervous as he was this night. And he's so nervous here when he's going out, he misses the two arrows where he's supposed to go through. I mean, he's clearly just not thinking. Um, and he says before the match, the rock came over and talked to the kids before they went outside and asked them about their Disney trip and reassured them that, uh, he would never do anything to hurt their dad. Um, and then we get going and this, this thing gets out of hand in a hurry. Well, it was, I mean, it was a long build for the match and it was a, it was a tremendous build for the match and the story was great. And I think at any other time, many years earlier, this would have been the thing to do with the family and the kids, the whole nine yards. But when we got closer to it and thinking about what all this match would entail and just the sheer brutality using the kids and using Colette was, I don't think we use them at all on the pay-per-view. So. No, very, very nominal amount. And you can see that there was a change in the decision because, uh, you know, they're not a featured part. I mean, they're briefly shown, but it's not nearly as featured as maybe it would have been without that call from the USA Network. Foley wrote in his book, It's strange, without the aid of a videotape, I remember almost nothing about the first half of a match and almost everything about the last, which you wouldn't imagine. Um, they're going to do a spot here in a minute where they climb a ladder for no fucking reason whatsoever to a second level and then take a no, bump. Rock is climbing to get away. Uh, and then he takes a bump, Foley does, onto these boxes and there's an explosion with sparks, and it kills the power. And supposedly, obviously, all the sparks and all that, that's all gimmicked. Uh, but there was some sort of electrical situation here that was a shoot. Uh, but, of course, the, the power going out was also part of the plan. Uh, so if you were curious, uh, yes, that is gaga, as Bruce likes to say on the show. 
and supposedly Vince Russo suggests that right here is when they would have Colette just beg him to stop the match. And that was one of the original plan B's um, that they had intended. And Foley said you just couldn't do that. After having seen all the brutality that happened at King of the Ring 98, that one bump uh, couldn't be the finish. It would make her a heel, and it would just kill him. It wouldn't have the effect they wanted. I found it interesting. I didn't remember until I watched this back that the table collapsed uh, when they were going to do the rock bottom spot. Yeah, and you here's here's the best part about that. That was a non-gimmick table. Uh, we briefly see The Undertaker and his only thing in the film. He's sitting watching a monitor with Triple H. I mean, he's on there for just a split second. You're going to see a clothesline from The Rock here in a minute. This dislocates, or they didn't show it, that dislocated um, uh, mixed jaw. And he said that his jaw would dislocate often. You see Jim Ross feeding Michael Cole lines there, and they do a people's elbow on top of the chair on top of Foley's head. Uh, Foley turned his head so it wouldn't go into his face. But he said all of a sudden that silly move didn't feel so damn silly when I had the chair there. This chair shot here, he says, is the hardest chair shot he's ever had in his entire life. Uh, and he never normally sold the first one because he had taken so many, he would shake that one off. But that one took him down to his knees. And um, it was supposed to be a minute in between. Instead, it was seconds. And you see the second one there. He says it knocked him off of his knees and onto the ground. But the third one is the hardest chair shot he ever received, even harder than the first one, and sent him down to his back. And it also opened up a cut that he had from several days earlier, but it tripled it in length and depth. So now while they were freaking out about, and there you see the family scurrying away, they've clearly had enough. The kids are screaming. They're done. Um, Dewey's shaking here and they're taking them out of here. And Foley wrote in his book, once again, I wish I could say my mind was on them, but I was oblivious to everything but the match. Uh, If it had been five months before, I saw Barry's footage of my family. The impact the video had on me made those chair shots seem weak in comparison. He says that uh, he had underestimated the impact. Let's hit pause right here. Uh, They're helping him to the back, so let's hit pause. He says he uh, underestimated the uh, impact that the handcuffs would have because it, in his opinion, altered his body's ability to give with the blow and thereby cushion the impact. He says every chair shot hurts, uh, but these were extraordinary. And uh, it was supposed to be five shots, and that's all that they had discussed beforehand. And uh, he says it took six more to get him up the aisle, and his children are screaming, blood's pouring down his face. And he says the theory that he had of the anticipation of the shot being worse than the actual shot, that theory was trampled, and the shots were much worse than the anticipation. And they came very quickly with a minimum buildup, and after eight shots, he turned his back to the rock and began stumbling up the aisle. And this was supposed to be a nonverbal cue for the rock to hit him in the back of the head to quote-unquote knock me out and just end the massacre. Uh, But by this point... Um, he, he was, he was done. And he talked about earlier, he was supposed to sell these chair shots a little more, but since rock hit him so hard, he bounced right up defiantly and he was angry. And when he kept feeding into that anger, rock fired back and was firing him harder. 
and he wanted it to end. So when he starts down the aisle, he's trying to get it to end. But instead, the rock doesn't pick up on that cue and runs around in front of him and smashes him over the head again. So if his goal was to show the main streak of the rock, it was achieved. And uh, then he hits him with the crushing blow in the back of the head for the knockout. And then while Mick is laying face down, of course, they play the tape uh, over the loudspeaker to say, I quit, I quit. And that was the way they kind of screwed him to say he didn't really quit. And they just played the tape and they show that the next day. Uh, but where, where we paused right here, we see the the guy that most of us know as the WWE doctor or head trainer. What's that guy's name? Francois? No, he was a fucking uh, Francois Petit. He was, uh, I don't know what the hell he was, but he's not a doctor. Well, let's run through what he is. He was Sub-Zero in Mortal Kombat in 1995. How great is that? Did you know that? Yes. I don't know why, but I found that hilarious. Yeah, he's a chiropractor. There you go. So, but, but, you know, you you talk about all that stuff, and and I'm going to sound like I'm defending Rock here, and I am. But the way Mick did feed into it, and Mick kept feeding into it, whether he's angry or whatever. He's supposed to hit him. is, Is that as if I'm a heel... And the baby face keeps feeding into me after I'm I'm giving you these shots. I'm going to continue to give them to you because I think you want more. If you're feeding me, by God, I'm I'm going to go keep giving it to you. So it was excessive. If if they had only done five shots, I do believe that this may have even been more impactful. If they had done the five shots and Mick sold all five of those shots as if they were the you know most incredible things he'd ever been hit with then i think it would have been more impactful than doing the however many shots that they did do the head they were brutal brutal it was painful to watch and obviously i wouldn't trade places with mick in a million years i i probably would have been out on the first one but at some point too you know you got to say okay mick you kept but you kept feeding so i think you're okay you can't stop the match and say, hey, um, um, I'm not okay here. Or because verbally and, and, and by your actions, you're telling me you're okay because you keep feeding me. So I think you're okay. I think you want more. Uh, Mick wrote in his book, I was disoriented from the blows and had to be helped to the back. But once I was there, my focus returned to where it should have been all along. Where are my kids? I was pointed to them, and as I reached them, the other wrestler saw me and gave me a standing ovation. I'm okay, I'm okay, I assured Colette, although I probably should have been asking them if they were okay. In my, own, uh, in my own defense, I must say that they all looked okay, and I had no idea that they had been upset until I saw the footage months later. Colette had taken them away from the ring after the fifth shot, and they had calmed down greatly over the next several minutes. Are you okay? Noel asked me sweetly as we walked to the dressing room where I had been told the doctor was waiting. It's just a little boo-boo, I assured her, before adding, you can't hurt daddy. Noelle surveyed the bloody situation before offering her own medical opinion, which turned out to be right on the money. Daddy, that looks like a big boo-boo. It surely was. I looked in the mirror and was not met with the same gash I had tried to repair. He mentioned earlier in the book that he had a gash from the previous match that he didn't go get stitched up. It probably needed three or four stitches. He instead tried to just glue it. And before he went out, you saw this chiropractor from Mortal Kombat patting him on the face, trying to get it to calm down before he went out. He didn't want it to bleed. That was the plan for it not to bleed. But, of course, 
It opened it up. Uh, he says, uh, this thing was a four inch gully in the hairline on the right side of my head. Sadly, I turned and lay down on the floor to be tended to, uh, while Barry's camera captured the whole gruesome scenario. I guess most children don't have the opportunity to watch their dad get stitched after getting the opportunity to see him get the crap beating out of him. At this point, the Disney trade-off probably didn't seem like such a great deal. I had many visitors while I lay in that room, all of them asking how I was. Billy Gunn, who I usually shared only a joking relationship with, was very kind, as was Darren Drozdoff, who offered up this sentiment, you were the fucking man. Droz was paralyzed in a match ten months later and remains in a wheelchair. Whenever I think of him, I think of that visit to the dressing room. When I left the arena, I was troubled by the fact that one wrestler had not come in and checked on me. That would bother me for a long time. And in truth, it is something that I've still not forgotten, not entirely forgiven. Of all the visitors who came into that room, The Rock was not among them. So I'm going to hit play back on the movie again so we can see all of that play out. Um, in hindsight, don't you think that The Rock should have checked on him? Well, I don't know that The Rock didn't check on him. And I, I say that from knowing Rock and knowing Mick, and Mick doesn't doesn't remember. Uh, Mick doesn't remember what the hell happened after King of the Ring. And I don't know if, if Rock did or didn't. So I, I don't know that other side of the story. He may have come in and seen all the cameras and didn't want to go in there and be on camera checking on him, protect his character and, and not be on camera. So that I can understand. That's the old school in him. Maybe he didn't want to, after that brutal match, go in there and do that. I don't know. But uh, I know The Rock is a person, and I know The Rock, you know, Dwayne Johnson would be concerned and was concerned about mixed well-being. That doesn't hold water about not wanting to be old school and no. not going there when he was on camera beforehand. I'm just, I'm just telling you that knowing Rock, that I don't know if he did or if he didn't. I wasn't there. We see fully. But I do, I do know. I do know that he, you know, was concerned about him and that he, you know, didn't go out there and just say, "Oh, hey, fuck Mick Foley." I don't believe that. So whatever miscommunication was there, I, I can't tell you. But um, I don't know if he did or didn't. I do know, you know, Mick Mick doesn't remember pretty much well, anything. Look at that. Look at Foley's eyes the right rain. there. That's what a concussion looks like right there. Sure it does. That dude sure. is nobody's home right there. As he's laying here and they're working on it, wow, it's a goat's vagina on his head. Um, Mick says something like, half of me says, why the hell are you doing this? And the other half is saying, this is exactly why you do it. Uh, and he makes some sort of comment. You can't have these matches very often. You'd be dead. Uh, and he, no, you can't. He does mention something about Foley or about Rocky. He says, when you have a talent like Rocky, you just trust his judgment. If I saw him now, I'd probably strangle him because he hit me so many damn times. But if you look at that tape, you'd probably say those last couple of shots made it. And then Colette makes a comment. She doesn't know how much more of this she can take. Uh, and in a minute, we see Foley visit with Vince. Uh, and he says something like, uh, he thinks they touched a lot of people tonight if he does say so himself. And he asks if he thinks he was too bloody tonight. My thing, he says. And Vince makes some sort of passing comment. Um, he'll let you, I'll let you know when I get the feedback. And this is all happening as Vince himself is being stitched up. And Vince asks about Foley if he feels 
okay. Uh, and Mick says something like, for every one person who thinks it was too violent, there are probably 20 who like it. And Vince believes that the character won't die. And when they get the story of how you were screwed, that's show business. And um, Mick asks if they had fun. And sarcastically, Colette says, so much fun. And uh, then we see the footage of Barry going to visit in Florida and show Mick the family watching the match for the first time. And as he does, Mick says that he felt guilty and that he felt like watching this, that his priorities were out of order and that he was a bad dad and he felt like a bad person. And it turns out maybe he will be the guy known for pulling a sock out of his tights for the next couple of years because nothing's worth that and he'll never do it again. He wants his family to have the last laugh. And when he was on Steve Austin's podcast and asked about this particular match, uh, he said that uh, by the time he was in the back with his kids, they were just saying boo-boo, and he didn't know how badly they were affected until he saw this tape. But by that point, the kids were already over it. And uh, Austin kind of wondered where the kids scarred by this seeing their dad beaten like this. And he said, no, that uh, kids are pretty resilient. And Austin kind of laughed and said that was a bullshit standard answer. Do you remember having a conversation with Foley about this specific match and about, you know, the fallout, so to speak from this? I've had, I've had discussions with Mick about, you know, not only this match, but the hell in a cell and different matches in general that Mick has done, some of the crazy stuff that he's done. And Mick is a good dad. I don't I do believe that that's how Mick feels, that kids are resilient and that when you explain life to them and you explain things to them in simple terms, that that they get it. They probably are a lot tougher than we give them credit for. Uh, doesn't make it easy. Not saying it wasn't traumatizing, because that was God. That was traumatizing for us to watch. That was brutal. And so you know, for your child to have to watch that and sit there and go through it, it's uh, it's a little different. But I do believe that you know Mick Foley, the guy that I know, is a good dad, a good husband, and didn't go in with that intent in any way, shape or form and is, and probably did feel extremely bad that his kids had to witness that. There is a, uh, director's cut version of this movie and on it, uh, Jesse Ventura and Mick Foley do the commentary and Scotty too hotty points out to Foley years later that he had been really rough on the rock when he did cut that alternate commentary And he wrote, if Rocket found out that on his own without telling him and giving him a heads up that I'd apparently been a little rough on him on commentary, if he hadn't gone out that day and watched it with his wife and come back and had a good talk with me, I'd imagine there'd be some really bad feelings. And you don't want to have bad feelings towards a guy who's doing so much better in life than you are. Uh, I hadn't watched it, um, and I was doing a little better than I had been emotionally back in 99. And in the back of my mind... But the Rock and Sock connection, uh, it was brought about with the express intent of me turning on the Rock. And immediately I thought, 
Well, I'm going to go back to the way I felt that day in the ring. I held on to it for a while. Five years later, or whatever was the case with the special edition director's cut with me and Jesse doing commentary, I still can't watch it. I don't want to hear what I said. Scotty came up to me and said, I watched Beyond the Mat. You kind of buried the rock. And I went, I did? How bad? And he was like, pretty bad. So I went up to him, and that's the way I like to be, is honest with the guy. He actually went out that day and got it and watched it with his wife. And he said, you were pretty rough on me, but I could have been a little more. He felt bad about the way he came across. And that's the way you do things. You sit down and talk them over. We came to a much better understanding, and we were able to much better appreciate what we had done in the ring, both as partners and opponents. Uh, So at the uh, end of the documentary here, they kind of recap quickly. Uh, Tony Jones and Mike Modest never heard from the WWE. Funk stayed retired. Yes, they did. Just to correct that, yes, they did. Uh, Well, what did they do? They told that we didn't have anything for them. Thank you very much, but, you know, uh, we have nothing for you. Yeah, I'm glad we corrected that. Well, I mean, uh, he says they didn't hear from us. They they did hear from the us. The gist was they never got hired. I knew what he meant. Don't I don't say think... that, but don't say that we didn't call him back. Okay. I hope people break down every fucking thing you say. That well, you particularly. are. Uh, Funk stayed retired for three months. Uh, Jake went to jail for child support. Uh, Draws didn't make it as puke. And then they show a graphic that he was paralyzed three weeks after the movie finished filming. Um, ECW got a deal with TNN, uh, Vince issued an IPO for the WWE, became a billionaire and they kind of recap the different roles that everybody played. And the two that I really like, uh, to drill on here with you is they show Vince and they classify him as a showman and then they show Roland and they classify him as a carny. Uh, but he says, for the most part, they're people just like me and you. Except they're really different. That sums up professional wrestlers. Wouldn't you agree? That's pretty accurate. Yeah. Uh, Once the movie came out, Larry King live had uh, Roddy Piper on. And he says that beyond the mat was the best documentary ever made on professional wrestling. And uh, Hulk Hogan, of course, said he'd love to be in the next one. Should Blaustein ever make another one, which isn't going to happen. Um, Let's talk about kind of the fallout from this. Uh, we just mentioned that uh, Vince tried to throw the block on it. Do you remember there being a concerted effort to push it down? When did Vince kind of change stances? He was all for it when he was in second position, but then no. wasn't when he no, was no, in first? No, 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 no. He was all for it to be a documentary. He was never for it to be a theatrical release. There's a big difference. A documentary is a not-for-profit venture. When it went theatrical and they were charging people and they were uh, gaining profit from it, they were gaining profit off of our stars. Who was on the poster? Uh, Rock, Mankind, and Funk. Exactly. So you got our talent on your poster promoting a movie, and we didn't participate in any of that. And we went into it saying that this was going to be a documentary that would never be released as a theatrical release. That is the bone of contention with Vince. That if it had been if it had been a theatrical release from the very beginning, we would have had a completely different agreement and a completely different working arrangement with them. 
Uh, Blaustein states that there were times when he got the real Vince McMahon, but he told Vince that he felt like at times Vince was just playing the television character. Uh, Blaustein says he was told a week before the Royal Rumble I Quit match that he couldn't film it. So he called Vince, who initially stood by the decision to not let him film. And Blaustein says that you're just trying to be like your on-screen character, and you know deep down uh, that it wouldn't be right if you screwed him over and prevented him from filming that match as crucial as it was to the documentary. And so eventually he just pulls the Trump card, so to speak, and says, I'm coming to film. And if you choose to have me kicked out, then I'll just film that. And that will be how the movie ends. So Vince changes his mind and said, he'd let him in, but this is the last time. So that was the end of the WWE filming. Um, was there any heat on Mick? for allowing Barry to come to the house and film with the family after? Well, we didn't know about it, first of all. And, and even going back to him coming to that particular event was it had been so long that in the, the thing kept changing and the premise kept changing. It went from, hey, we want to follow a couple of guys from the beginning until them becoming WWF stars to – well, now Mick is a part of this thing, and you got Rock, you got all these other guys involved in it. That I think Vince just kind of had enough at that point and was, we've given you access for the time that you asked for us to give you access, and now you're, you keep changing it, it keeps evolving. And, and I get that. I do get that from a creative standpoint. But the. Yeah, I, I think he said, okay, here, you got one last time. This is it. Um, do your documentary, and, and let's move on with this thing. And then next thing you know, it's going to be a theatrical release. And that's that was the bone of contention. That's where Vince got pissed. Uh, some of the questions we had on Twitter, because I did make a post. So if you aren't following us on Twitter, you should be, because I'll occasionally just say, hey, anything you want us to ask? So this morning on At Pritchard Show, I asked, hey, anything you want to know? And uh, Donovan Kenny on Twitter asks, who actually owns the rights to be on the mat? Do you know? I would assume that the executive producers, uh, Barry Blaustein, uh, Ron Howard, I think Barry Bloom is one of them. I think those guys do. Um, Troy Kalmus wanted to know if Vince often called Jimmy Ross Jimmy. I don't remember that being said in the movie. Never. Did he refer to him as Jimmy in the I've, movie? I've never, I've never heard him call Jim Ross Jimmy in my life. Uh, did you have a specific conversation with Steve Austin about this movie at all? No. Um, everybody wants to know about Dennis Stamp. I hope Dennis Stamp's on Twitter. Dennis, if you're on Twitter, tweet us uh, at Pritchard Show. <laughs> um, I don't feel like we can get enough of this. Can you do the uh, Vince McMahon? He's gonna. He's gonna. Yeah. Well, people. he's got a puke. He's got a, he's got a puke. He's got a puke. Uh, do you know if there were any other scenes that were filmed at headquarters that weren't used in the final cut? Or... Oh my God, there was a ton of shit that was filmed. I mean, a ton. They, they spent a day at my house. At your house? Yes. Shooting stuff with, with me and my brother and Dory Funk Jr. And they spent three days on the road with us when we went out and did uh, spot shows in the Northeast. There's a ton of shit that they shot. They didn't use. 
Oh, we need an extended cut then. Come on. What's going on, Barry? Let's make it happen. Let's put it on the network. Why not? Um, was anybody kind of campaigning in Vince's ear to do this or did Barry just sell it? What do you mean? Talent wise or in the office? Was anybody for it or against it? Where did Pat come down on this? Uh, Pat wasn't really that involved at that time, but behind the semi, I mean, he was an agent, but that was about it. Pat wasn't in the office at that point. It was, you know, really came down to a conversation with Vince and Ron Howard and letting Barry in and then thinking that this would be a good thing for the company to do this documentary. And again, to use it for propaganda, if you will, to help people show the positives of our, of our company and the wrestling business, which is again, how it was presented to us of what they wanted to do. So, um, I don't know. There was any one person in particular that was championing, championing this, but there were, those on you know, the talent side and in, in the office side, well, I, you know, I should be in it more. I, what, why don't they follow me around? I've got this great story. So when you talk about people that were doing things on camera, it came down to an opportunity to perform in front of a camera. So, you know, Jim Ross doing interviews, uh, Jim Bell doing his interview in his office and Vince. that was people performing uh, brian on twitter wants to know jesse ventura name drop blousing at wrestlemania's three and four was he going into business for himself no they, they were friends from barry bloom um, was a writer on saturday night at that time eddie huff wanted to know if vince campaigned or would have liked for mark Miro to have been featured I have absolutely no idea where that comes from. Well, I mean, I'm sure um, here's the room and innuendo. They go over the roster list and they're kind of talking about who or what or why or when or where was Mero a consideration with that? Or, uh, who would he have been pushing for? Uh, the only people that we were pushing for on our end were the developmental guys like draws. That was the only thing that we were pushing for on our end talent. Mitt kind of fell into it and that was about it. The uh, we we gave them Jones and uh, Modest. So yeah, the, we Vince wasn't really pushing for any on-air talent, you know, talent on the roster at that point to be a part of it. He saw uh, it as a, a board for draws. That was about it. Uh, did you ever talk about the movie with um, Jim Cornette after it came out? I'm sure I did. I don't remember anything specifically. Do you remember anybody having a really negative opinion of the movie? Oh God. I think a lot of people did. I know that it, I didn't have a particularly positive view of it. I thought it was artistically. I thought it was very well done. I thought that it, I thought he did a good job of telling a story. Uh, I didn't like the Jake stuff just because I didn't like showing that side of the business. But I think a lot of people felt that it showed way too much inside and behind the scenes things that, by God, you don't show that stuff. You know, Rock and Mick talking about the match beforehand. A lot of people were, were upset with that to see that back, the backstage stuff. Do you think um, they were fair to Jake or do you think they were kicking him when he was down? <sighs> kind of a little bit of both. A little bit of both. Well, anything else you can tell us about? All things beyond the map. 
Um, overall, the they were pretty easy to work with, but like I say, we were of the mindset that this would be a good vehicle for us to get some up and comers out there and to tell a different story. And the thing just changed and evolved as we, as we went along and we got a completely different end result than what we were originally pitched and that shit happened. So case okay, sera sera. Well, we'll see you back here next week for Doink the Clown on something to wrestle with. (laughs) Bruce Pritchard. God damn, do it with a little impact next time. Get a pop out of the damn thing. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together... It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.